This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And in today's episode, we have Dinosaur of the Day, Guan Long. We have an interview with Jim Kirkland. We're reporting on the third day of SVP, which was Friday. And we have a bunch of other dinosaur news. And as always, we'd like to thank all of our patrons for helping to keep the podcast going. And this week, we would like to especially thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons, Kyle, Brendan, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, and Marcy. Yes, thank you to everyone Garrett just mentioned on our list and everyone else who is our patron. We're growing. Thank you. Yeah, we've had lots of new people joining and we really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. If you want to get in on this action, check out our page at patreon.com slash Dino. So jumping into our coverage of SVP on Friday... The day kicked off with some countershading talks. First of all, we had Smithwick talking about stripes on Sinosauropteryx, which is kind of a smaller bipedal dinosaur, and it has a tail sticking out behind it like pretty much every dinosaur. But the interesting thing was they found that although its stripes were perpendicular to the length of its tail, it probably couldn't hold its tail horizontally. So they wouldn't have been for camouflage. Like if you think about zebras that have the vertical stripes, and then sometimes people talk about when they're in a herd, it confuses predators because you can't see where one zebra begins and the other (laughs) zebra ends. You couldn't have any kind of camouflage going on like this because it would have been drooping to the side. So you'd be able to tell based on like the curve and the, you know, slanting lines. It would kind of throw off the camouflage. So they proposed that it was more likely intended to draw attention, possibly to be a distraction away from the head so that if it was spotted by a predator, rather than the predator noticing the head, it might notice a tail if it kind of wiggles it about. (laughs) It's kind of a decoy. And then they also noticed that the eye appears to be camouflaged. There was a kind of a stripe going across it. And apparently that's seen in lots of modern birds. And I guess it's useful to hide from both predators and prey because if you're hunting something and the thing sees your eye coming towards them, it notices that there's an animal coming for them and it runs away. And also if you're on the other side of that and you're trying to hide, an eye really stands out as an obvious thing if the rest of the body is camouflaged. So camouflaging the eye can help. (laughs) Why are you looking at me like that? Showing you my eye. Oh, I see. Your eye's not camouflaged, so I can see it just fine. (laughs) 
Another presentation was presented by Dave Riccio, although it was originally supposed to be presented by Kundrat, but he couldn't make it to SVP. And that talk was all about Bonapartanicus, which is the largest known alvarosaurid, and it was found with its egg remains, so that's pretty cool. Although alvarosaurids are generally pretty small. They're the ones that have just like the one hook claw kind of thing, and they think they were kind of like anteaters, and they're all smaller than a person, basically. So being the largest of that group isn't like being the largest titanosaur that really gives you a lot of bragging rights. (laughs) That depends what your company is. Anteaters are not that large, but around ants. True. (laughs) Touche. (laughs) The next talk was by Funston on a new oviraptorid and how it shows kind of social behavior in dinosaurs. So what happened was a new oviraptorid was recovered from poachers in a three dinosaur set. There are three of them. And one of the specimens found was really young, but it was found in the same posture as an older specimen, which is interesting. And then both the juvenile and adult had crests. And the crests were pretty similar too. One, the juvenile one was just a little bit smaller. Yeah. So that seems to indicate that the crest grew as the animal aged. But they had them when they were young. So it's not just something that showed up as an adult trait. Yeah, it's not just a sign of maturity. And they think that the reason these oviraptorid specimens were found in the same posture was they were probably in a sleeping pose. They had their head on their hands. Yeah, that's pretty cute. Yeah. Yeah, It is unfortunate that it was originally collected by poachers because we don't know much about the locality because of that. That's the biggest problem. You lose a lot of that information that you find at the site where the specimen was found Mm -hmm. when you have to recover it later from people rather than dirt. But I like that we found dinosaurs that were sleeping. Yeah. And the crest thing is cool too, because they pointed out in the past, some researchers have questioned whether smaller oviraptorids that were recovered were actually their own genus or whether they were just juvenile forms of other oviraptorids. But finding some very young ones that have the same head crests as the older ones implies that If they're missing a head crest or they have a specific type of head crest, that it's likely similar in the adults. So that gives you a new diagnostic feature for the young, as long as it's consistent, which I guess is a big if. I don't think that oviraptorid has been named yet, though. Yeah, I don't think so. We also got a couple more details on Carithoraptor from Lou, and that was a dinosaur that was discovered recently. Another oviraptorid. Yep. (laughs) They usually kind of put the talks in an order that matches some sort of consistency when they can. Makes sense. Yeah. And the interesting thing was that this cassowary-like crested oviraptorid, as they describe it, was likely eight years old, but it was still growing. And it had lags in its bones, so you could see how old it was. And I think this was the one where the fifth year of its life appeared to account for like half of its growth, like it went through a crazy growth spurt right in the middle there. And that one was kind of funny too, because the last slide of the talk was the title slide from LiveScience.com, where it says, newfound dino looks like the creepy love child of a turkey and an ostrich. Yeah. And we talked to the author of that paper, Laura Gegel, who didn't write the title of that paper, but she did write the content of it. There was also a really interesting presentation by Torices, who talked about theropod teeth. And in particular, she was looking at the different types of denticles that they have. 
Denticles are one of my favorite things. <laughs> I think it might be one of your favorite words. It is a pretty fun Say word. Say it with such gusto. Denticle. <laughs> so a denticle is a serration on a tooth, basically. So it's like a little mini tooth on top of a tooth. And it turns out, if you take a serrated tooth and you put it under a microscope and you look up close, I guess a magnifying glass might work too, but you look at these little tiny ridges on the teeth, they're actually really specific to different types of dinosaurs. So just finding a tooth can be pretty diagnostic. And what she and her co-authors were looking at was how these different shapes of denticle might affect the way that the animal ate. And if we can learn anything about the animals from the shape of their denticles. So she kind of broke it down into three different types of denticles, at least in the data set she was looking at. There were rectangular denticles, which were all over the place. They were the most common by far, found in, in lots of dinosaurs, including Gorgosaurus and Dromaeosaurus. Then there were pointed denticles, which she only had in Saurornitholestes. And then there were these strange hooked denticles, which sound awesome, that were only found in Troodon. So what they did is they looked at the microwear patterns on the teeth, and that kind of determined the angle of rip. <laughs> so if you imagine, say, with a knife or something, if you're slicing things and you slice something that's a little bit tough, you'll leave a little bit of a scratch on the knife. And you'd be able to look at the knife and see what angle you cut at because the scratch follows the direction that you cut. So they were doing the same thing on these teeth. They were looking for these little tiny scratches on the teeth. And by that, they could tell what angle they pulled their head and their teeth when they were ripping out flesh from another animal, basically. And what they found was that the shape of these denticles really affected the angle of the rip. So they analyzed the teeth digitally and they used 300 megapascals or 43,000 PSI as the failure point for dentin, which is important because then you know just that what that limit is of how hard you can yank <laughs> when you're biting. And they found that the square denticles led to the lowest stress and the most potential angles that they could bite at, which kind of makes sense that they would be the most common because they're basically the best. With Sauronithelestes, the pointed denticles had a moderate amount of stress and mostly worked at about 30 degrees. And then Troodon's weird hooked denticles were the most fragile, and they hypothesize that Troodon may have favored either softer prey such as invertebrates or small prey that didn't require the same bite forces that things that the Dromaeosaurids were eating. So pretty interesting. I never thought about using denticles to figure out bite force before, but it's pretty clever use of technology. Yeah. And it kind of shows that maybe Troodon wasn't going after as large of prey as Dromaeosaurus. And now on to the posters for Friday. We have to talk about Donald Henderson's poster because he was one of the people that was most involved with Borealopelta from the early stages of the work. And his poster was all about how Borealopelta floated upside down along, basically, you know, bloat and floating out into the ocean. And then it eventually, I guess, popped or something. So it sank really rapidly. And it actually left a little bit of an impact crater when it hit the ground, which is just great. And then it got quickly covered and preserved. And then fortunately for us, it got all quickly covered up and preserved for tens of millions of years until we could find it. 
Hooray! <laughs> and now it's on display, and it is beautiful. Another interesting poster on Friday was by Matthew Lamana, and he showed the history of some of the dinosaurs from Antarctica, which were largely from the same mountain. I guess that's not too surprising because so much of it is covered in ice and snow. Yeah, it was specifically James Ross Island in Antarctica. Yeah, and that's it's on one of those kind of, I guess it's an archipelago or something that sticks up by South America. Yeah. So it's pretty far from what I think of when I think of Antarctica, like the ice sheet with all the emperor penguins. This is often like the islands Well, closer. there's still penguins. He mentioned that was a problem. <laughs> oh, that's true, because you have to stay away from them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny, but they want to come see what you're up to. So it's like having a restraining order and you have to stay away from the thing that's trying to get at you. (laughs) And we wrapped up Friday with the SVP auction, which is always fun to attend. The committee always has a theme and this year's theme was Guardians of the Galaxy. Which was very popular. Mm -hmm. I didn't get it because I haven't seen it yet. Some things you could just pick up. Yeah, we should watch that. I think there's a sequel that's already come out by now too. Yes. Oops. But anyway, there's a silent auction part where people basically go around the room and write their names to various items. As you do in a silent auction. Thank you. <laughs> and and then the main event is uh, there were a number of items. Big ticket items. Big ticket items that they're auctioning off. There's one guy, I think he said he's been doing this 35 years. Yeah. You can tell, too. He spoke the quickest. Since the original SVP auction. Yeah. So some of the items was a Boreal Pelta skull, a replica, a juvenile Chasmosaurus cast, a Big Al skull, replica, Vilosaurus. And then at the end of the night, they were just trying to get rid of like 7,000 reprints <laughs> of yeah. journals. And t-shirts. Yeah. They just kept adding it to the mix. Like $5, you get these three shirts and this huge stack of papers. Yeah, pick whichever reprints you want. Take as many as you can. (laughs) It's pretty entertaining. Yeah. There weren't many of us left by that point. I think there were like 20 of us still sitting and watching the auction. Yeah. The big ticket items I would have liked to bid on, but they were way too high of a starting point for us. They started out of our bidding range and quickly got up into the thousands of dollars. Yeah. Although Canadian dollars, so it's a little bit cheaper. Not much. Save like 10 or 20 percent, something like that. Not enough in this case. No. (laughs) But yeah, we had a good time. Yep. And next week we'll finish off the last day of SVP. In other dinosaur news, the Friends of Dinosaur Ridge in Colorado are trying to help preserve the dinosaur tracks at Dinosaur Ridge with an enclosed track site cover. So ideas were presented to Jefferson County commissioners on August 29th, and the group asked to move forward with a formal proposal and planning and fundraising processes. Some of their ideas would improve accessibility, drainage, and roadway clearance, and their idea is to have a translucent roof and LEDs to highlight the tracks. The cost is estimated at more than $3 million, and if approved, the plan is to fundraise over the next five years, and the next step is to get site approval and feedback on the designs from community meetings. Sounds like a cool idea. $3 million doesn't seem like that much for a large building like that. Yeah, well, it depends how they have to fundraise. I suppose so. So we'll see. Next, authorities in Morocco have opened an investigation into smuggled dinosaur fossils. So a jeweler had posted on a Fossils and Rare Antiquities Facebook page about selling the lower jaw of a Spinosaurus, which was found in Morocco. And this fossil is estimated to be worth about $5,000. If there's the full skeleton, it would be worth a lot more. Yeah, 
And we have so little Spinosaurus remains. That's a shame. That's why it would be worth so much. Yeah. Yeah. Next, we've got some Jurassic World news. So there's a new-ish fan theory about Jurassic Park and Jurassic World going around right now. It started with Redditor BrownRa04, who posted in 2013, so not that new, but it's making the circulation now, that dinosaurs in Jurassic Park weren't brought to life from preserved DNA and amber, but that they were all a compilation of different animals made to look the way people assumed they should look. I'm not sure this theory is as big as people are saying, considering that's basically what they did with Indominus Rex, but maybe the fact that it came out in 2013, yeah, it's kind of a new idea. Yeah, I think that's also just kind of a cop-out I've heard before for like why dinosaurs look like our 1990s idea of how they look and they haven't been updated at all. (laughs) Yeah. But speaking of Jurassic World, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom merchandise has been revealed. So the fan site Jurassic Outpost posted an image of the merchandise and it includes marshmallows, (laughs) chicken nuggets, cereal ice cream, and dino munch, which I think are chips. At least that's how they look in their bag. So it's all food? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) On the packages are images of Rexy, which is the T-Rex from Jurassic Park, Blue, the Velociraptor, and an erupting volcano, which kind of teases that a volcano will be a big part of the new movie. So people are theorizing that in the movie there's going to be rescue missions of humans saving dinosaurs from a (laughs) volcanic eruption. I think it might be the other way around. What if it's dinosaurs saving humans? That would be interesting. And unexpected. Yeah. And speaking of Utah Raptors, kind of. <laughs> Good segue. Yeah. We're going to go on to our interview with Jim Kirkland, the Utah State Paleontologist, who's working on the Utah Raptor Project. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and 
starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We're joined today with Jim Kirkland, who is the Utah State paleontologist, and you may remember him from episode 34 when we talked about Utah Raptor, and Jim is here today to talk to us more about the Utah Raptor project, which is really exciting. But uh, yeah, I, we've talked about the Utah Raptor project a few times on our show, but just in case there's anyone new joining, I figured we'd give some background. So it took, was it 12 field seasons to get at these bones? Yeah, I guess it would have to, you'd have to say 12 field seasons before we got it down off the hill. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was, it was uh, an amazing operation. In fact, I like how my uh, right-hand man, Don DeBlue, uh, ter- you know, talks about the site. You know, if we knew what we were getting into, we would have walked away. Was <laughs> <laughs> it? Certainly, it's the the biggest undertaking. You know, we we're we're a small program. We we were very successful. It's hard not to be if you're working in Utah. But at the time, there were there were four of us total. You know, being paid on the paleo program for Utah. Mm-hmm. Now we're down to three, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But you know, basically. Uh, doing that work, uh, which wasn't funded by any specific grants. It was on state land, so we couldn't apply for you know, a lot of the federal monies that uh, we would normally have tried to dip into at least a couple times during that time period. And Discovery Channel and some of the other uh, media venues that used to be very good to us, unfortunately, have discovered reality television. <laughs> uh, it's a lot cheaper to do than documentary television. So now they buy their programming from uh, small documentary filmmakers, and none of them have the kind of resources that, that it takes to, to fund projects for uh, potential uh, programming in the future. You know, placing those bets, because when you do get behind a research project, you're you know, you're placing a bet. That, you know, you're working with somebody that's going to succeed and going to produce something that's going to be well worth sharing with the public. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So I've seen your GoFundMe has started to get a lot more traction. You're up to about a third of your goal now? Yeah, the uh, New York Times put out in their science section a story about, you know, our quest for funding for this project. And we've gone up, uh, you know, we're trying to raise 100000 so we're quite a ways from that goal. But uh, we went from about 15000 uh, almost heading toward 35000 now Nice uh, in a period of a week. That's great. Uh, so that's 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 exciting. That's you know that's more than double the money we've uh, had to work with. We've got a lot of equipment we've needed on that money that we got so far. So now hopefully this will pay for some some hours of our preparator mm-hmm. working on the block. He's really been volunteering so far. I mean mm. since we started uh, this process. Scott Madsen, right? Yeah, and you know we had to lay him off. He was on soft money, and when the price of oil fell, just as we collected the block, you know, basically everybody on soft money at the survey, uh, just across the board, uh, were laid off. It was it was pretty heartbreaking for everyone concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, about a twenty percent, twenty five percent reduction in staff, but uh, you know we basically can't go in the red. It's not allowed. <laughs> right. So is Thanksgiving Point? That's where the block is right now, right? Mm-hmm. Is that part of the state paleontology program, or is that a private museum? Not, a, not at all. Uh, the North American Museum of Ancient Life at Thanksgiving Point 
is a is a huge exhibit. It's, got, it's definitely one of the biggest dinosaur exhibits in North America. I mean, they have two T Rexes, they have a Supersaurus, they have a Brachiosaurus, something like fifty four mounted dinosaurs. It's, wow. it's it's really a magnificent exhibit, and I think everybody should stop in if they're driving by on Interstate 15 south of Salt Lake City. They really should stop in if they're at all interested in dinosaurs because it is is a wonderful wonderful exhibit. They did a a great job with it. And they've got a preparation lab in there. And it was basically the only lab in the region that uh, could hold this block. (laughs) It's a nine-ton block or something like that? Nine tons. And... uh, as it turned out, the you know the University of Utah, which is the repository for the fossils, eventually that's you know by state law, you know they're the repository. Hmm. Their floors wouldn't hold the weight of this thing. <laughs> so it's very nice. Thanksgiving Point stepped up uh, and were willing to actually brace their floors because they're the one floor up is a basement below it. And they've got, you know, big mining jack set up underneath the block oh, wow. uh, wow. to make sure the floors are strengthened. It, it, there's, it's a strong, well-built building. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they added some extra <laughs> pillars <laughs> underneath it to make sure everything would be okay with us moving it in. And then uh, Jim Cross at Cross Marine Projects is an underwater salvage company and actually helped us with the project, pulling this block off the hill, thanks to some engineering by a volunteer, Phil Policelli, uh, but Jim uh, provided his facilities to build uh, the sled that we brought it down on, and they funded it being moved into Thanksgiving Point. Oh, okay. wow. And uh, I, can't, I can't say how grateful I have been to, to his support and, and encouragement. Failure is not an option, so we <laughs> keep pushing forward uh, to get this thing done. And as for me... You know, I'm 63 years old. I want to you know, make sure this thing is probably going to be worked on long after I retire. Mm-hmm. And I've got to make sure that it is you know, safe and then the uh, infrastructure is set up around it to ensure that it keeps getting worked on and nothing is, as they say, falls through the cracks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I consider it one of the my biggest duties professionally to make sure this thing is handled properly in the long term. Because it is, it is a, definitely a legacy specimen. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And one of the things I really like the more I hear about this project, too, is just how many people are coming together to help out in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of support. You know, I think it's something like 500-plus donors. We've That's had great. a few bigger donors in the, you know, in the last few weeks than we've had in the past. But, you know, some of these include kids giving, sending us their birthday money. <laughs> 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 I mean... You know, I mean, there's 500 donors. I mean, a lot of people, you know, putting money out of their pocket toward this for nothing back other than uh, being kept in the loop mm-hmm. on on how this work is going to progress. And that's incredibly gratifying. I'm kind of amazed that we haven't gotten a documentary film company that's wanted to jump on board. Because what is more sexy than a <laughs> pack of Utah Raptors trapped in quicksand? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. There's been some really great updates on the blog, and I was just watching some of the video updates, too, especially when you got the, um, is it, there's a camera there now, people can see live stuff happening? Yeah, it's, you know, when, when Scott's working, I'm, I'm not sure if it's hooked to the internet or, uh, you know, we probably will have that ability eventually, mm-hmm. but uh, I think right now we're recording. 
some of the stuff that he prepares in the microscope. You know, the way we're trying to record the, the bones in the block, there's so many things in it that it's, you know, staggering to con- contemplate. We're using photogrammetry mm-hmm. to document the bones in three dimensions as we go through the block. And, uh, you know, none of us are probably the best people to be doing some of that. Uh, fortunately, the data collection is pretty easy with photogrammetry. It's the processing that gets to be more complicated. Uh, but even it's not bad. The, the robust computer programs are pretty good. You know, we can get, you know, well below millimeter accuracy in three dimensions. You know, it, it's going to allow us to document this in amazing detail. And eventually, we'll be able to make periodic 3D life-size models of this thing. Oh, uh, wow. You know, potentially in full color. And to scale, we can make small ones, too is going to be interesting so once as we develop this thing it'll be very interesting to see how how the skeletons uh, are lying relative to each other layer by layer by layer as we go through it mm-hmm. and we'll actually have the ability uh you know probably long after i'm dead and gone but to scan the back sides of the bones uh, once they've been prepared outside the block and reconstructed you know with the the bones in the the layers so we can have a full 3D rendering of all the bones going through the whole thing. Yeah, that'd be cool. You know, it's just amazing because it's, so, it's so automated. Mm-hmm. I mean, and as we go along, this software is getting better and better. A few years ago, this would have been a much more tentative uh, thing to do. But now it's like, if you're not doing this, you're kind of an idiot. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 the software is so good. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, a good, you know, you just need a good SLR camera. You want uh, a ring light. So, you know, because you don't want shadows because as you move the shadows, um, it would distort how the things match up. But a good ring light. So you have the same direct lighting with the images as you go and you know, have these overlapping images. And basically, uh, once you have that data, can pretty much be run by almost anybody. Cool. Yeah, considering before that, most people were doing CT scans, which you couldn't even do on a specimen like this, even if you had the multi-million dollar piece of equipment. <laughs> yeah, this maybe NASA might have a machine big enough for Hill Air Force Base, but even then, the frame is got metal in it. Oh, you know, yeah. That, you, know, you know, that's critical. That's what's holding it together. <laughs> and you just can't, you know, can't hit it with that. So photogrammetry is the way to go. We just identified, thanks to Rob Gaston, who's working on an, an updated mount of Utah Raptor, mm-hmm. working with new material we have of the skull and uh, new material that uh, has been collected from a uh, bone bed at Brigham Young University. I uh, got some beautiful three-dimensional material of a big adult. Uh, and our stuff, you know, our biggest animal is a big adult, as big as the type. We put all this together, you know, this new mount of Utah Raptor will be uh, very much an uh, improvement over anything that's been done in the past. Because they were done from a handful of bones and, and modeling, you know, scaling up Deinonychus, basically. Right. Yeah. And we now know a lot about this animal uh, and know that it isn't that similar to Deinonychus. Uh, one thing we know, because we have tails preserved, is this thing does not have the bony extensions on the the zygopophyses and hemal arches hmm. intertwining down, you know, five to seven vertebra mm-hmm. that you see in Velociraptor and Deinonychus. It's, it's stiffened, but not nearly to that degree. Hmm. 
And that, that was, that's an important observation. And we also know it has a big procumbent dentition. You know, there's a reconstruction that's been put out by uh, Scott Hartman. And this, uh, you know, shows this prognathic uh, dentition. And if we look, we realize, you know, we, we said from the first paper I wrote on this thing back in 94, that uh, it was related to Romeosaurus based on some characteristics of the premaxillary teeth. This is confirmed because if you look at the paper by Phil Curry on Dromaeosaurus's skull, where he did a beautiful paper uh, re-describing the material, uh, and you look, a few of the front teeth are broken off. But if you look at it and realize the angle they're you know, hitting the, where they're broken off, you realize Dromaeosaurus also has pronathic teeth. Mm-hmm. And it you know, adds to the thing that you know, perhaps all the Dromaeosaurines as a subgroup of, of the Dromaeosaurus have these pronathic teeth that, and, you know, from the dentary extend forward, these tails that aren't as stiffened as velociraptorines are, and these specialized premaxillary teeth that have a little twist in the carina as they come to the tip that are known in no other theropods. You know, you start putting this together and, you know, this thing has always come out close to Dromaeosaurus, but uh, some of this new data is, I think, confirming it. The back of the dentary, the back of the lower jaw, is indistinguishable. But what we, the bone we call the surangular, mm-hmm. it is just a giant Dromaeosaurus <laughs> surangular. I mean, it, it is exactly the same. It's awesome how similar it is. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, so this, you know, this stuff is all real exciting. We have found another a Velociraptorine in a neighboring site, or at least the tail of one is clearly a Velociraptorine tail of a small. Velociraptor-sized animal, and uh, from that, and from looking at this material, where we have tails, we're starting to see sections of big tails, littler tails. I'm absolutely convinced that we have in this level, which we would consider our fauna two of the Cedar Mountain, the second one up mm-hmm. in the Upper Yellow Cat, both a Velociraptorine dromaeosaur and a dromaeosaurine dromaeosaur. So we have two kinds, and both of these kinds persist to the extinction at the end of the Cretaceous Wow! in North America. I don't know if dromaeosaurines ever made it to Asia. They often tie this critter to Achille Batar, big Asian animal, Mm -hmm. but uh, I just don't see the similarities. Yeah, you mentioned the recreation by Scott Hartman. Was that where he recreated it being a lot more robust looking than something like a Velociraptor? Was that based on the Utah Raptor project findings? Yeah, and it's actually based on some of the original material. Oh, cool. You know, when we first described the tibia, you know, I said in the initial paper, uh, you know, we had both tibia when we described it initially. At the time, we weren't sure they were all from the same animal. Mm Mm-hmm. But now we know all the Utah raptor bones from the Gaston quarry, the type locality where we first got it. Every bone of a Utah raptor in that quarry is almost certainly from the same individual. Oh, nice. oh wow. So, you know, and that really helps because before we had to define the claw as the type. You got to pick a bone <laughs> or an individual. You know, if you can't tell, they go to the same skeleton. But now that we, we're pretty positive that all the bones pertain to one individual, we can expand the the base for the species concept or hyperdyme to include all the bones from the Gaston quarry. That includes skull material, pedal walking claws, the sickle claw, hand claw, uh, the metatarsal for the the twisting thumb you know, claw, mm-hmm. dorsal vertebra, 
let's see, caudal vertebrae. You know, we have a variety of things from the skeleton. And because of that, you know, we have a, a pretty robust, the ankle, uh, understanding of what this animal was like. And that and that's exciting because it, it really does show that the big animal in this block is definitely a big Utah raptor. And the smaller animals, because of similarities, you know, are certainly represent a growth series for those animals that we can't totally discount that we could have a small velociraptor in there too with Mm -hmm. everybody else. (laughs) The babies show characters of the pre-maxilla that are known in nothing else but Utah Raptor among theropods, as far as I can see. So that's, it makes me feel pretty comfortable that the smallest skulls are definitely going to Utah Raptor uh, with skulls would be about three inches long. Wow. Seven, eight centimeters total. Mm Mm-hmm. So they're pretty pretty small compared to a, I don't know, 60 centimeter, 65 centimeter long Utah raptor skull, upper adult animal. Yeah, that's exciting. How many individuals are in this block? It's I I have you know the counts you know because everybody <laughs> you know you know generally is conservative. I just read a an article what published in International Business News you know, <laughs> and right now we we have. But one big adult for sure, four or five juveniles that are a bit bigger than Velociraptor, mm-hmm. kind of an intermediate sized animal based on a foot, you know, that we have in a couple other things, mostly probably buried within the block, the foot was sticking out. So that's why we know that we have this intermediate sized foot and uh, at least three of these babies. Oh, wow. And what's interesting, where we have multiple things, is there's multiple animals of the same size. Mm-hmm. And what that suggests to me is, you know, these represent uh, clutches, you know, groups of individuals are hatched from the same clutch of eggs mm-hmm. and have stayed with the parents uh, or parent. It's hard to say if both would have been the leaders of the pack, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I expect there probably were two, but... Uh, you know, don't want to don't want to talk where we don't have data yet. <laughs> sure. But it's you know, I see I see some pretty good evidence that you know these things. You know, when they had a clutch of eggs, the young would stay with the adult for for some years before cool. they were probably chased away to make their own packs, <laughs> find their own mates, and 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 make their own way. And you know, and we there seems to be some good evidence of that for other theropods as well. You know that they they were gregarious animals, and uh, certainly not gregarious in the sense of a pack of wolves in terms of how they interact with each other, but uh, <laughs> gregarious in that there are probably some clear instinctual behaviors tied into the this you know having groups of of young stay together with the adult uh, that are probably totally tied up into their hunting methodologies and things. Utah Raptor is kind of like T-Rex. It wasn't the fastest animal there was. Mm-hmm. Massively built. You know, I always joke it's the Arnold Schwarzenegger of, of dromaeosaurs. Because <laughs> it's uh, the tibia, as I said, we had the tibia in the first, you know, first specimens. And uh, we noted that the tibia, for the same length tibia, was 50% more massive than it was a tibia of that size for Allosaurus. Wow. Wow. But, you know, I mean, massively, massively built animal. Yeah. You know, and that's with strong muscle attachments, the new brain cases. This thing's back of its head is packed with massive muscles. So, you know, you gotta, you can't just blow up a Velociraptor and make a Utah Raptor <laughs> or blow up a Dinonychus like they did in 
walking with dinosaurs because the head would look totally different. I mean, the whole back of the head was, you know, it had huge muscles attached to that neck. And clearly the, the skull and mouth had much more of an effect on their hunting ability than, than people think of for with dromaeosaurs. You know, they're not just using their claws to kill things. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of reason that their skull would be so powerfully attached to their neck. If they weren't employing that skull uh, and hunting quite a bit. Right. But what's with these pronathic teeth and the dentary? They're not really pronathic in the premaxilla. They seem to come down normally. And it may be, you know, something to do with the way they dispatch prey, maybe related to feeding style. That's one reason we do want to CT scan this maxilla, which is very pneumatic, a very complicated maxilla, clearly a beautiful, beautiful thing. Unfortunately, we only have part of it out. The rest of it's in the block with the rest of the big skull. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so pneumatic and so odd looking, I didn't, you know, think of it as a maxilla at all. And it wasn't until Rob Gaston, who had been working with the maxilla that Brigham Young University has, that's a, you know, that's, yeah, you got part of the maxilla here. And that's, you know, because it's a bone that, you know, we've shown it to a lot of people, you know, people that know dromaeosaurs rather well, and they weren't IDing it. You know, I knew it had to be skull, but it's like, what is it? <laughs> and, uh, and the same with the brain case. When we first showed the brain case to Mark Lowen at the university, you know, the guy that tried the uh, uh, Lythronax, he's like, it's Tyrannosaur. Look at that huge nuchal crest, big <laughs> crest, size of these muscle attachments. Well, basically, if you got a big skull, you got a big nuchal crest, and you got a big fractal <laughs> crest, you have to have these bigger attachment points uh, for muscles. But, you know, it goes beyond that. You know, the, the whole way the, the, the brain case is canted forward relative uh, to the condyle, it's, it's, it's very unusual. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this site's going to be exciting because we have articulated things. So we yeah. can really see what's going on to individuals uh, much more clearly. So, you know, proportions will be uh, much better understood. And, the you know, the preservation quality is, is awesome on this. Uh, I mean, the babies seem to have t- a tooth morphology that we think of as paranicodon. And Phil Curry had commented that he thought these might be juvenile dromaeosaur premaxillary teeth, the stuff in the Campanian. Uh, and yeah, he's right. <laughs> 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 that tooth morphology and the teeth are changing from things with these vertical ridges and on the sides uh, that have a tend to have a somewhat flattened side to uh, a more typical theropod tooth as they grow bigger. I find that really interesting. Yeah, that is. And why, you know, I mean, there's so many whys that we're going to be able to start finding answers to. You know, it's just really exciting to me. I, I wish I was immortal. They, <laughs> you know, it'll probably, it'll probably be, you know, like today, you know, we're learning about animals that were dug up 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, as we, you know, new techniques are brought to bear on old fossils, you know, we discover some incredible stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this site, you know, maybe we're seeing maybe 10 animals now nice. based on parts that either sizes don't fit or skulls. I mean, <laughs> which is always nice. <laughs> then you know for sure. This is just around the edges of this block. Yeah. And there's so many bones in this stuff. You can't put an ice pick in there without hitting things. 
you know, this is nine by nine by three feet, you know, three meters by three meters by one meter mm-hmm. blob that's totally intertwined you know, and layered skeleton. <laughs> you know, and it's how many of these can you fit in? Because there's only, you know, I, I'm betting there's only one, you know, maybe there's two big adults in here. Mm-hmm. You know, we're only seeing parts of one at this point, you know, and a lot of younger animals in, in the, in the block. But, you know, who knows, you know, maybe we have, but these small animals, I don't know how many of these you could fit in there, but <laughs> you could squeeze a ton of them. And I know there's articulated skeletons laid out at the very bottom of the thing. Cause I've seen them. <laughs> so we first, the first thing we ever found was a jaw. You know, I picked up this piece. Oh, we found a foot sticking out. That probably goes, it's probably this juvenile foot actually mm-hmm. sticking out of the block. And uh, that was described as a human arm bone, you know, one of the toe bones coming out broken in half. <laughs> well, about as big around as a human humerus and mid shaft, you know, this little hollow bone. Pretty neat thing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, find this, this jaw bone and I'm cleaning up down there and realize yeah, that's a series of vertebrae. Those are ribs. And, you know, there's a, a little theropod laid out here. And this is before I thought of the Utah raptor. I knew we're at the same level, mm-hmm. but this animal is clearly though, quite a bit smaller than my thoughts of what a Utah raptor was all about. Cool. And uh, as we have, we worked, you know, we just find more and more of this stuff. So, you know, there could be 30 or 40 animals in here. You know, <laughs> and, you know, it may be 20 years. I mean, you know, and we may never get to the bottom. We may, that, that skeleton at the very bottom, we may never get to it. I was thinking uh, it'd be a while till someone it, sees that again. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I just want to get back down to the, the big other rest of the big skull, mm-hmm. you know, cause we had a rock fall on site, uh, back in oh, 2007, uh, where some big, you know, recliner sofa sized chunks of the poison strip sandstone mm-hmm. fell out of the cliff and landed on the quarry. Oof. Oh. Yeah. I mean, if, they, if we'd been there, you know, some people could definitely have died. Yeah. You know, this was a big rock fall. We had a couple of big blocks broken away from the front of the quarry. Wow. And that's where we found the front of a, the lower jaw, you know, right to the symphysis with the teeth in it, the brain case this maxilla who knows what else is in with the maxilla you know the rest of that's all going into the the main block so uh i do want to get to that but (laughs) this thing is about midway down you know we got we got a ways to go before we get to that (laughs) i'd love to try to expose that area of the block in this coming year with the money we 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 raised uh, to prepare it because I would like to get more of an adult Utah Raptor skull out of that block. Yeah, that'd be great. It, it is some pretty beautiful stuff. You know, and it, it, it goes real slow. I mean, Scott's uncovering a lot of new things that you've seen from his updates. It's something you like Dinosaur National Monument, you know, in, in miniature. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's the kind of you know, density or actually probably proportionally higher density of stuff we have in this block. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Uh, I wanted to ask, actually, one of our listeners, Luke, he said he's moderating a panel at the Salt Lake Comic Con that you're going to be a part of, Feathering the Utah Raptor, the real star of Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah. We're going to, uh, I mean, I've given some talks about uh, Feathering Utah Raptor, kind of a history of dromaeosaur research. Uh, Utah Raptor was the sixth one ever named of all the dromaeosaurs. Hmm. And now that now there's like 30 plus. <laughs> wow. 
you know, and this is in 25 years, less than 25 years since I named Utah Raptor to begin with. So there's been a lot of discoveries, you know, over the last few years. And of course, Dakota Raptor is one of the most recently named things. And, but it's even scrappier than the original Utah Raptor. <laughs> yeah. Except, you know, we're finding Utah Raptor is the most common dinosaur at this level. You know, new sites are appearing, you know, regularly. You know, so we're going to know a lot about Utah Raptor. You know, in over 100 years of intensive work on the Hell Creek, you know, <laughs> Dakota Raptor, you know, they still only get scrap of, of one animal. Yeah. You know, so it suggests that, you know, they're not going to be, you know, flying off the shelf. <laughs> and even though his claws are virtually the same size, I mean, they, they're almost identical. When I when I saw the pedal claws, like, yeah, it's got to be another dromaeosaur, you know, of this size. Its limb bones are longer and more slender. So it looks like its ecology is going to be pretty different. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it would be a taller animal where I think Utah Raptor would be a, be a heavier animal you know, more massively built, kind of like comparing Tyrannosaurus against Giganotosaurus, mm-hmm. you, know? you know, I mean, they're both huge animals, but one is certainly more gracile than the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of what I see with these two, even though they did not live together. And I seriously doubt they're, you know, a lineage, you know, that we, you know, because Utah Raptor could be as old as 135 million or you know, maybe as young as 125, depending mm-hmm. on who you talk to. But then, you know, you still got to go another 50 million years to get the Dakota Raptor. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. The odds are low. And we know a lot about the, the animals in North America through that time interval now. And there there's just not any evidence of, of these things. A big line of Utah Raptor-sized animals surviving for the entire Upper Cretaceous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's, I think, you know, these things will evolve. It's changing size. Isn't that big a deal? Because we see that with animals all the time. You look at mammals through the history of dogs, you know, they'd be periodically large, you know, from unrelated lineages. I mean, it, it happens quite a bit. Size size isn't the biggie, you know, for, for evolutionary trait. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having a new big animal coming out of Dromaeosaurus, or Trochoraptor, which is that the same thing as Dakotaraptor, which is an interesting question. You know, basically, yeah, okay, you, you know, have another one animal get big. You know, they needed a medium-sized meat eater. You know, the, you know, it's Nano Tyrannus, not real. Then you, I still think you need some medial-sized meat eaters in that ecosystem. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a rare, it's a very weird ecosystem. Yeah, compared to the the Morrison. You know, where you have like five big meat eaters. Yeah. Yeah, those those are some of the the big questions that uh, people are going to have fun speculating on without <laughs> <laughs> nearly nearly enough data to get too comfortable with it. Definitely. Well, so what's the best way that people can help with the Utah Raptor Project right now? Well, you know, clearly, you know, you can go on to the site, which is GoFundMe.com. Uh, slash Utah Raptor. And there's, you know, it starts out with about a, a six minute rambling discussion by me uh, in front of the site, <laughs> uh, in front of the block. You know, I think we did it in one take, <laughs> which is probably been better if it had been done in a bunch of takes and edited. <laughs> but BJ uh, Nichols, who, you know, is our master logo maker and 
supports so much of our work as a incredibly creative man. Uh, I'm very happy he was able to come over and film that. <laughs> it was the intro stuff, but, uh, uh, have that six minute thing. And then if you go into the blog, you know, people that donate, you know, we've been putting regular little video clips mm-hmm. in there and, and, uh, as well as lots of imagery as new things get exposed. You know, one of the newest things is a beautiful juvenile dentary that's unfortunately dipping under a, a small femur of a, another Utah Raptor. Hmm. You know, this, the pickup sticks, it always drives us nuts. It's, <laughs> oh, I just follow this bone along. Then we can just collect it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, figure out how, you know, the whole process of first developing this stuff, getting the photogrammatic map data out of it and then figure out how do we extract bones you know it's really what's going to take a lot of time Mm -hmm. because basically we pretty much are going to have to prepare the bones out as we go because there's so many it's you can't just pedestal them and pop them out Uh, i i really want to see us get uh, a baby utah raptor skull out Mm -hmm. and they fall apart you know people think even though all the teeth were in all the jaws, these animals, you know, have very kinetic skulls. That is, the joints between elements in the skull are mobile with each other, mm-hmm. and particularly so in the smaller animals. You know, they don't cement up the elements, even in the brain case, early on. And so you got these little skulls, and they they're in piles. <laughs> you know, they're just kind of <laughs> falling apart. And oh, people, well, how would that how would that happen? You know, because they were in quicksand. Yeah. Uh, well, the thing is with the quicksand, you know, it's not what, you know, it's the collapse of the uh, sand boil that's what buries them. You know, they don't sink like Tarzan movies, you know, <laughs> the last finger sticking up you know, help me, you know, <laughs> down under the sand. You know, the boil eventually uh, loses its hydraulic head. It's, it's as water is being pushed up through it by compaction that these things are dangerous and you get trapped within them. Mm-hmm. But it's the collapse of the feature that really does bury you. Mm. But the thing is, you get an event, uh, maybe more drought, so the water table drops more and, and things start compacting more. When that happens, it's going to push more water out, mm. you know, because water is between the grains and the water will come up through the sand and reactivate the boil. So what happens is you've got you've got completely defleshed skeletons in there. And water starts coming through it again. So you turn it into a little bit of a boil again. And that starts pulling the carcasses apart some. And the skulls, you know, they're all there in the same place, but they get pulled apart Hmm. uh, to some degree. And we've discovered around the edge of the block, because of the nature of the collapse, there's these radial faults that go around it from when the thing collapses in and on itself. We've got bones that go over and they're truncated. (laughs) <laughs> and they drop down uh, because of, of the way the these little faults go. We we actually published the preliminary paper on the taphonomy block in a journal called Paleos. You know, so this was the first site that anyone's ever published on as quicksand. You know, being responsible for killing a lot of dinosaurs. But I tend to think that Chinese death traps in Western China are also uh, dewatering features or quicksand sites as well. Hmm. I don't think those were dinosaur footprints those animals fell in. I think they're big dewatering features, personally. <laughs> but uh, just me saying, but we did say it in the paper, too. <laughs> uh, 
pretty pretty convinced that's what those things are and very well documented papers so it actually uh, presents the kind of data we hope to eventually have on this site uh, yeah. more fully document what we have going on yeah uh, but it's you know it's just such an amazing thing to have this spectrum of animals of different sizes it you know, is. as we go through it you know are we going to see you know consistently size classes we may find that you know there was you know a single uh, pack or maybe there's two packs and they were buried five months apart. If that be the case and the hatching times were similar, then we would get more gradations between the animals. Mm-hmm. But if we don't see any gradations, we could still have two packs that dive together and they get caught because of the same, maybe the same dead iguana daunt attracted them to the site, you know, that brought them in to, to die. Mm-hmm. But all of this will be revealed as we map these bones, as we measure these bones, and look at the nature of the animals within this thing. You know, it's going to let us know something about pack structure, mm-hmm. how these animals were behaving, you know, because this would be good evidence that they were following the adults and that this, you know, we may be seeing things that, you know, have been transmitted all the way down to you know, ravens and things where you have groups of young ravens following parents around for a while. You know, birds don't do it as much, but, uh, you know, ducklings following the adult, that whole behavior of following the adult mm-hmm. may still have been held over from, you know, well back in the dinosaur lineage. Yeah. You know, maybe down to more basal salurosaurs or tyrannosaurs are doing it as well. Yeah, that'd be cool to know. Well, this is exciting stuff, and we're really looking forward to what you are able to learn and publish about this. And thanks for taking the time today to share with us. Oh, I tell you, I, I really, I really appreciate your interest. I mean, you know, we do this because we love what we're doing, but I also do this because, you know, I, I enjoy sharing it with people. And and you, you're you're our mouthpiece. You know, you get this out to the the folks that are interested, and and we're dependent on people interested in our work to to get this kind of work funded and funding is it's a lot easier to get money to go out and an expedition and go collect these things mm. but to do the, the grunt work in the lab mm-hmm. very difficult well yeah we well we hope this interview will help yeah hopefully oh. <laughs> and also with comic-con good luck with that talk too i'm sure there are a lot of dinosaur enthusiasts there too well, we're going to have, yeah, we're going to have a booth and there's 120,000 people that go to Comic-Con. Oh, wow. Mm. You know, it's a big event. If half of those people put a dollar into the bucket, we're pretty much funded. Definitely. And we're talking about a Utah Raptor State Park now, north of Moab. Oh, wow. And who knows, maybe this will be tied into that since it's also from state land. Yeah, that'd be great. A uh, lot, lot of things happening. Uh, it's It's exciting, but never moves as fast as we like. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Take care. It's been fun. Thanks again, Jim. We really enjoyed talking with you and learning more about the Utah Raptors and the Utah Raptor Project. Yeah, I hope you get some funding so that this can get done as quickly as possible because I want to know what's in that block. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Guanlong, which was a request from the Paleo Bro via YouTube. So thanks. The type species is Guanlong Wukei. It's a proceratosaurid tyrannosauroid that lived in the late Jurassic and what is now China. And the name Guanlong means crown dragon, but when you put together the full name, it means five-color crown dragon. And the crown refers to its head crest, which is the most elaborate of known theropods. The species name, you may have guessed, means five colors, and it refers to the colors of the rock of Wukean, where Guanlong was found. It was found on a joint expedition in 2002 by scientists from the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology and George Washington University, and it was described and named in 2006 by Xu Xing and others. They found two individuals, a partially complete adult and a nearly complete juvenile, in the Chinese Shishuo Formation. The two specimens were found together with one lying on top of the other, so they had fallen into a muddy footprint of a large herbivore, possibly Mementosaurus, and then they were trapped. That would have been awful. The juvenile probably died first and then was trampled by the adult who came later. Although I think that might be what Jim Kirkland was referring to in that rather than falling into a sauropod footprint, they actually were in quicksand. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) So the adult Guanlong was about 12 years old and reached maturity around age seven and the juvenile was about six years old. They look like Dailong, but with a crest, so they may have had primitive feathers like Dailong. Their crests are thin and delicate, and they may have been used for display. They may have been a different color from the body, too. The adult had a larger crest, which ran from its nostrils to its eye sockets, and the juvenile's crest was shorter and only on the snout, and it had longer lower legs and larger eyes than the adult. The crest was similar to the crest of Dilophosaurus and Monolophosaurus, and it was very pneumatized, which means it had a lot of air holes, though Guanlong's crest was more delicate. It's one of the oldest known tyrannosaurs, and it helps show that tyrannosaurs may have started in Asia. It's classified as a tyrannosauroid because of the shape of its teeth and features in the skull and pelvis. It's part of the family Proceratosauridae, which includes Proceratosaurus and Sinotyrannus. It was about 9.8 feet or 3 meters long and weighed 100 to 200 pounds, or 45 to 90 kilograms. It had three fingers on its hands, compared to later tyrannosaurs that only had two, and it probably hunted smaller dinosaurs and mammals. It may also have been prey for larger dinosaurs, such as the Allosaur, Yangchuanosaurus. It lived in a seasonal climate with humid summers and dry winters. And other animals in the area include sauropods, ornithopods, small and large theropods, as well as turtles and small mammals. The Guanlong skeleton is at the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology in China. And you can see a life-size reconstruction at the Australian Museum in Sydney. 
You can also see Guanlong in Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs. It's meant to be a twist on Velociraptor. Weird. I would have never identified that. Although all those animals are so caricature-y, it's hard to pick them out. I'm glad we know that we couldn't really figure it out when we watched it for the Wigging Out podcast. Mm-hmm. You can also see Guanlong in Dino Death Trap, which is a National Geographic documentary. And I found there's the Guanlong Cube. It's a Rubik's Cube, three by three, and it's known for being smooth and priced at an affordable rate. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know why it's called Guanlong. That's hilarious. And our fun fact of the day is a little bit of a callback to episode 71 when we looked at some 538 data about paleontologists. I love that website. They looked at (laughs) all the paleontologists and how accurate their names have been. So basically, if they named 100 species and only 10 of them are still considered valid, they have like a 10% success rate and then ranked them all the paleontologists based on how successful they were. And then there's a pretty big bias towards the newest paleontologists because, of course, they haven't had their papers published long enough to find new material and then (laughs) later synonymize their finds. But back in episode 71, we mentioned that Othniel Charles Marsh named 80 species and only 23 are still considered valid, giving him a success rate of 28.8%. But Edward Drinker Cope named 64 species, and only 9 are still considered valid, giving him a success rate of 14.1%. So both pretty bad, although Marsh definitely came out ahead on that. And he came out ahead on not getting his brain weight. (laughs) There you go. But on the other hand, Charles H. Sternberg's middle son, Charles M. Sternberg, which does make it really confusing. It's an unfortunate coincidence that of his four sons, the one that's also named Charles Sternberg is the one that had all these finds. <laughs> but he named far fewer dinosaurs than Cope or Marsh, with just 19 species named. But nearly half of them, eight, are still considered valid. Pretty good. Yeah, and some of them are really well-known dinosaurs. They include the Ankylosaur Anodontosaurus, the Notosaur Edmontonia, the Ceratopsian Pachyrhinosaurus, which is that one without facial horns but has the big flat bony bosses instead. Like a boss. Yep. (laughs) And the Hadrosaur Brachylophosaurus, which was exceptionally well-preserved. So he had a pretty great career. And many of his discoveries were made in Canada, and he later went on to establish Dinosaur Provincial Park there. Like his father, Charles M. Sternberg, he also lived a really long time, from 1885 all the way until 1981, almost 96 years, just a few days short. Pretty amazing. I can't imagine, I think about that time period sometimes and what it would have been like to be born when it was all like horses and carriages and then live all the way through like cars and rockets and like the internet and everything. That would have been just nuts. No, the internet wasn't that widespread. True. Yeah. But there were video games and everything, just like a totally different world. It would have been amazing. <laughs> Plus discovering a bunch of dinosaurs. What a good life. Yeah. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. If you like listening to I Know Dino, then please subscribe so then you don't miss out on any of our episodes. You can also join our growing community on Patreon at patreon.com slash I Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.